For May 4th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. No one on the corner got solar like us. We rock on PVs, but efficiencies are nice. We save in that green boss, you in those ducks. I pick the low fruit, making use of megawatts. No one on the corner got solar like us. We rock on PVs, but efficiencies are nice. We save in that green boss, you in those ducks. I pick the low fruit, making use of megawatts. All I want to do is... Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Improving energy efficiency should always be our first objective in any energy-related project, and it should be our first goal in energy transition, because it cuts the problem down to size and makes it easier to come up with alternate solutions. And improving efficiency is nearly always the cheapest way to solve an energy problem. A megawatt, as Amory Lovins coined it so many years ago, that you don't have to generate is almost always cheaper than a megawatt of new energy that you have to generate. But for some reason, efficiency is often the last thing we think about. We seem to just be programmed to always think about solving problems in terms of adding more supply rather than reducing demand. Now, I don't know why that is. Maybe shrinking our needs just feels like deprivation and increasing supply feels like luxury or abundance. But whatever the reason, it's clear enough that efficiency is the first thing and the smartest thing we should focus on with respect to energy transition, and that we really need to make it a priority. For example, if we only had to replace the capacity of half the coal-fired power plants that are retiring in this country, it's a lot easier to imagine how we could do that using just wind and solar than if we had to replace all of that retiring capacity. And considering how old and leaky most of the buildings are in the U.S., an energy efficiency improvement of that magnitude should be a very achievable goal. Unfortunately, decades of attempts to create incentives to install energy efficiency upgrades have fallen short of expectations. Yes, we have improved the efficiency of a lot of things over the past 40 years. We now routinely install insulation in new buildings and use better windows, and our new vehicles get considerably better gas mileage than they did in the 70s. But we still have a very long way to go. And part of getting there involves understanding why our efficiency efforts have failed to produce the anticipated results, and then coming up with more effective incentives and markets. So today we'll be speaking with Matt Golden, CEO of Open Energy Efficiency and Director of the Investor Confidence Project. Matt is a very deep thinker on energy and has been working with the most fundamental problems in efficiency for over a decade, and has launched a bunch of really effective projects. It's been my pleasure to know him as a friend and a colleague, and now it's my privilege to have him on the show. So let's bring Matt into the conversation. Welcome, Matt, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. 
So you've had a really interesting career path. When we first met around 2004, I was designing and selling solar PV systems in the Bay Area, and you had a company that went around testing thermal and air leaks in buildings and helping people figure out how to correct them. In the 12 years since then, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how your career has evolved and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah. Well, I actually started in the same place as you, one step even before getting into the efficiency business. I took a flying leap out of the technology industry and landed in solar back in the Wild West, very similar time frame to when you were playing that game, and uh, saw just a, a gaping hole in energy efficiency, really kind of believed the notion that there really should be an energy loading order and that there's this huge opportunity that really wasn't being tapped in energy efficiency in the built environment. And as you said, I, I at that point made a jump out of the solar industry, which was you know, very much early stages. I was actually at a company called Sun Power and Geothermal Energy, now called SPG. And we did the first megawatt in the state of California back when a megawatt was absolutely unfathomably big. Yeah. We couldn't possibly believe how many panels it was. Right. At something like $9 a watt. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I watched that market evolve and actually have taken a lot of cues from watching the solar industry mature from a bunch of, no offense, us hippies in NorCal selling solar on home equity lines to the industry that it's turning into today, which is really a very much different story. And frankly, energy efficiency, I hope we can learn some of the lessons from solar, but it's, it's really destined to follow a somewhat similar path uh, if we play our cards right. So interesting, it, you know, it's kind of the, the uh, Chinese proverbial definition, I think, of interesting times. But as you said, I kind of jumped out of solar and kind of technology and got into what was really just a down and dirty crawl space, belly crawling contracting business doing home performance, which was really you know, energy auditing, building science based, whole house retrofitting in Northern California and really grew that business from my third bedroom. The, the origin story, I think, was I, I sold my Westphalia to seed fund the company and we grew about 100% a year for about four or five years just organically. And that, that company was Sustainable Spaces. That right? was Sustainable Spaces, and which became later Recurve, was rebranded after we took a few slugs of venture capital money and, and started becoming really two things. One, we started investing heavily in building software technology to try to improve a number of aspects of the business that actually continued to cause problems. And I'll talk about how we're actually, I think, just now coming up on solutions to some of those problems. But so we, we built tools for contracting companies to be able to go into a, a house use a tablet PC. This was, it was not a good omen, but we missed the iPad by about a year and a half, <laughs> timing-wise. Yeah, that would have been handy back then. It's all about timing, isn't it? Yeah. So we built but a really powerful suite of tools. The technology is still in use. That allows contractors to go into a house, either tethered to the internet or, or untethered, not only simulate the building and, and estimate energy savings across you know, any number of energy conservation methods that you might be employing, you know, everything from light bulbs to HVAC and you know, new ductwork, et cetera, but also... Estimate the project, which is maybe the hardest part of doing the business, honestly, is training a bunch of energy auditors to be able to estimate seven or eight or nine different trades and actually deliver on-site, you know, even same day, a professional sales quality report to the customer so they can close the job, actually get the stuff built, which is a minor detail when it comes to energy efficiency that, and that we'll, we'll talk about more, but there's the great promise of energy efficiency and then there's the barriers that, that stand in its way. And that's kind of what we're, we're trying to overcome here. So Recurve, which was what Sustainable Spaces became after, again, we raised some capital. The joke, and this is actually not a market timing joke, but we raised money on a Friday and on, on a Monday morning, Lehman's Brothers went bankrupt. So that was, that was our market timing. Talk about into a headwind. 
<laughs> it was definitely a challenging run. So we were trying to scale into the basically the collapse, which is just an interesting set of circumstances. And really betting very heavily that the Recovery Act and these public programs are spouting up all over the country because we'd actually grown our business before there was a program in California. We were the first real home performance BPI accredited company and nobody was there to help without it be really grand if the, these programs emerged. But you gotta be careful, it turns out what you ask for. So we were betting on you know the, the industry taking a turn up into the right based on all the money that was going into home energy efficiency. You know, uh, it was over $500 million that was deployed to the Department of Energy into better buildings neighborhood programs. There were utility programs spooling up all over the country. And what we found, unfortunately, was that we were writing the best software in the country. And I think, honestly, we actually just won a software shootout seven years later when somebody still had this breacher of software running seven years later at an event. But we found that we couldn't sell our software to contractors, even though they desperately needed it and wanted to buy it. And many actually bought it while also having to buy whatever piece of regulated software the program required them to use. And that's what we bumped into around the country in California, but really all around the country that you know these what we hoped to become markets were really little regulatory fiefdoms. And so, you know, contractors had to use whatever software tool the program told them to use. So that was a big challenge to the software business. And then from the, you know, the contracting business, again, it was just into a headwind. So definitely market conditions were challenging. But when the programs arrived to help, what we actually found is that they trained a tremendous amount of competition. So we were a company that, you know, we had health insurance and offices and company trucks, and we were competing against a bunch of really small contractors without any cost structure using borrowed equipment. And then the program also became kind of our number one competitor for customers. And then some were, you know, they were spending large amounts of money acquiring customers and ultimately competing for us against who the people, folks that were you know, historically our customers. And then all of that combined with the fact that we ended up hiring at least two additional people and we can no longer deliver reports on site as we'd always done because of the amount of paperwork that we needed to process. So a lot of struggles that really slowed us down and taught me a lot of lessons in the process. The remainder of my career, because I was a little deep dive into sustainable spaces and recurve. And, and really, by the way, that's what we've seen is that, you know, the home energy efficiency business, even after literally billions of dollars going into it over the last five years, really has struggled getting traction. Most large companies, recurve would be one of the larger, but by no means the largest plays in the space. But companies like Well Home, which is part of Masco, Sears, it's a long list of uh, Next Step Living most recently. Companies that have tried to go to scale in home efficiency have really struggled. So the, the solutions that we're now seeing come to the table are actually really built on my experience personally that I had in the market and experience of many, many others to really change the name of the game and, and, and engage marketplace that rewards innovation and, and results and kind of deregulates the core business models so that we can you know see the type of innovation that led to solar growing the way it does today. You know, there's when you look at what's actually delivers solutions like Solar City and Sunrun and Tesla and Nest. These aren't the results of regulatory systems or white papers by consultants. You know, it's the brutal selection in the marketplace that results in this sort of innovation. And that's really what we want to bring to energy efficiency. Right. So you've actually been about efficiency all the way along, trying to figure out how to get markets to properly value and accept efficiency measures on at least an equal footing to energy that gets consumed. And you've had to create some new ways of thinking about and doing things along the way because efficiency sort of always seems to be the redheaded stepchild of energy transition, when in fact it ought to be the first thing we do, yeah. long before we think about putting up solar panels or whatever. So your latest move now is to try to change the way that efficiency projects are financed by moving away from a programs-based approach that has always been used to support efficiency measures and toward a pay-per-performance model. So let's start there. What's wrong with the programs-based approach that we've been using? Well, at its core, 
in energy efficiency, really, as you're kind of stating, different than almost anywhere else I put my thumb on, we step in a trap in these programs. And the trap is really simple. You know, we have software tools like Recurve, but many others, you know, they can be everything from a sheet of paper with a deemed average and set up predicted savings to very complicated, fancy software that they're all making projections. And efficiency different than almost any other market. We take these engineering calculations that project what is going to happen over some series of years based on whatever the methods are. And then we pay people out. We give somebody a rebate based on that projection. And while it sounds really good and simple, it's actually a trap because what we do when we pay upfront based on an engineering calculation, which again would be underwriting in any other industry, is we misalign the incentives. And so if we pay a bunch of contractors out, they get paid and the customer gets their incentive upfront, we really left them no incentive to care about energy savings and no ability to profit from projects that actually work better. In fact, it's the opposite. If you put the extra time and money into making a project that actually delivers, and it does take more time and money than it does to just put in you know, the lowest cost box and kind of the run of the mill way that the industry does it in the market, you don't get any reward for that work. And so the basic underlying idea behind pay for performance is rather than constrain the industry and basically be forced to regulate, because once you've paid up front, the only tool that you know utilities and programs have then to ensure that the savings get there is create a bunch of rules and go try to make folks do stuff that ultimately loses the money. And that's really hard to do. And the result of that is that for efficiency across the country, and this is a bit hard to believe, but we have 100% program overhead, which means for every dollar that makes it through to a customer, we spend an, another dollar on program overhead to make sure it was spent wisely. Because we're basing everything on projections and then having to try to go verify that the projection worked. Yeah, and make rules to try to, you know, again, force folks to spend extra time doing stuff that they don't get paid for. And it's really hard to do. In fact, I might even say it's impossible to do based on the results that we have at this point. So how does paper performance actually work? Like, how do you verify that it worked? So you may have noticed that pretty much every building has this thing on the side of the building. It's called a meter. <laughs> and we just got through spending untold billions of dollars putting in these new things that give people up here in Marin where I love cancer, it turns out, but everywhere else they're fine, called smart meters. That was a joke, by the way. Just <laughs> <laughs> so make sure you never know how you're going to get clipped. In this <laughs> but we, you know, we've invested tremendous amounts of money in smart metering infrastructure that gives us interval data and access to that data remotely in ways that we've never had before. So built on that access to data, we have the ability, and we'll talk about this more, but just to for now, we'll just stipulate, we have the ability to track energy savings and not just savings as base load as we've thought about it in the past, but also savings in terms of time and location using smart meter data that you know fundamentally makes it look like capacity. And you know we can talk more about how pay performance works and why using smart meter data to measure results in this quantifiable way makes it something that procurement folks and air resource and folks that are air regulators can actually rely on and start thinking about as something they can actually procure. But the basic notion of pay for performance, you know, what it does in the marketplace is essentially reward those solutions that work. And because we're paying only for results that actually happen when they happen over time, it doesn't require the kind of regulation that, that a program that pays up front based on an energy, on some sort of model or prediction requires to get the results. Because we're only paying for the results that actually happen. Yeah, I, I get that. But I mean, a customer's use of energy can change for any number of reasons. Right. I mean, so how can a pay performance approach actually distinguish between behavioral changes and efficiency improvements and really guarantee that an efficiency measure was what produced the energy demand reduction? Ah, you want to enter the rabbit hole. That was the question. Got it. So, <laughs> hey, man, this show is all about rabbit holes. It's all we do here. Well, the good news is that efficiency is even more fun because it's like a rabbit hole and you take an onion and you drop it into the rabbit hole. <laughs> so that, that's, a, that's how I like to describe energy efficiency. 
<laughs> in fact, someone who's just started it came up to me after talk and was like, wow, you know, I just started, you know, so much more than me. And I was like, I hate to tell you, but after a decade, I actually know that I know less now than when I was in it only. A year. Ain't so that the, the truth? <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm now aware of how much I don't know, but okay. So let me back up to your question. So how do we actually make this work? So let me, let me peel the end and back slowly here. So first, you know, we've been taking a basically an engineering based approach to energy efficiency, which is if we just keep modeling, if we just add another air film to that layer in the wall to calculate what heat loss will be finally be right. And if we just get like a little bit more accurate measurement and a little bit more accurate blower door, and you're never right because of these pesky humans that use our buildings and weather changes that are you know, local, like local weather patterns. And I bought a new TV and there's, there's so many of these non-routine adjustments that being that there's basically diminishing returns on trying to be right in individual assets based on an engineering approach. So the opening meter takes more of a financial approach to it. We, we take a portfolio approach and it turns out when you look at one house, and you say, you're going to save 20% and this many kilowatt hours in BTUs. There's a huge amount of variance there. We have an overall tendency to overpredict almost all the time. And even if we were right on average, we see a lot of winners and losers. If you step back and you look at 100 houses that are largely the same, what you realize is while you, you'd be hard-pressed to place a single bet on any one of those houses, you get a really consistent standard deviation, meaning you have a very probable the amount of yield is very consistent and hmm. you know, how many winners and losers you have is very consistent as well. And so it starts to look like a car loan, right? Rather than try to, when you go get a car from the dealership, they don't spend a month trying to figure out if you're going to default. They look at your FICO score, they look at your DTI and a few other things. And they said, great, drop you in a bucket. Here's your rate. They don't know if you're going to default, but they do know the percentage of defaults for that FICO score and DTI. And that's really how we're able to have high confidence is that at an aggregate level, and you know, the pay for performance is not, let me be clear, directly paying to the customer. It's actually paying through aggregators who are market participants. We can talk about who they will be more in more detail, but they could be vertically integrated contractors in Solar City. They could be pace providers and finance companies. They could be any number of players, including current program implementers, could play that role, but really anybody that can aggregate a portfolio. And it turns out, again, at a portfolio level, and this is really critical for efficiency. This is a very, very probable resource that you can really count on when you get enough of these assets in a bucket. And then in terms of your notion of like attribution, really, and this is really interesting because California in some recent legislation, AB 802 in particular, really changed the definition of energy efficiency. So in former programs, or I guess current programs, we're hoping they're going to be former, where we give out rebates, we're really thinking about measuring the, the use of that rebate like it's a coupon. You know, it's like it's marketing. And so, you know, if you send out a 20% coupon to somebody in your bed, bath, and beyond, and they were already, you know, headed out the door to buy bed sheets, you think to yourself, wow, it's wasted 20%. That's bad. If you're in resource acquisition, however, you count all savings and you address the kind of incremental attribution issue through pricing and through markets, and you basically count everything. There's a price for a bushel of corn. You check to see if it's in fact a bushel, you know, you pay the clearing price. And that clearing price is determined through supply and demand in the market. And so AB802 actually specifically says we're going to be counting all normalized metered savings. We're going to include code. We're not going to try to only include above code anymore, which is almost impossible in reality to quantify. We're also going to include behavior. So when we meter buildings, if you train your crews to install stuff correctly, you get paid. If you train your homeowners to close the windows when they run their air conditioner, you also get paid. It's looking at efficiency as a resource. Or the grid. And that's the right way to think about it as well. If you're in a procurement department of a utility, you don't care why the savings were there. You care that, that a particular set of buildings are demanding fewer electrons than your forecast would have said otherwise. And so you don't need to buy more 
production infrastructure. Okay, so I think the answer to my question was you you disappear the margin of error down basically a larger data set. Yeah, you, that's the law of large numbers washes out the variance. Yeah, and, okay. And you count all of it. And then the other piece of that is you count all of it because it's a resource, not a coupon. So you count all of it and then you're able to basically derive what a single customer's portion of that would be. Well, so, and this is really where the market comes in. The opening meter, we'll talk more about how this all works, but the opening meter in California, it's called the Caltrack system. It's one of the same. You know, the base, if you back up, the kind of core of a marketplace is sellers agreeing on a price for a product. So to make this all happen, the first thing we've had to do is establish what is energy efficiency, which sounds kind of like a silly question, but we've never had agreement on this point. And this is particularly hard to measure because you can't actually measure efficiency. It's a calculated value because it's the difference between a counterfactual, what would have been if you hadn't retrofitted a building, and what is in fact now the bills. Right. So you have to calculate that counterfactual. So what enables this whole system is we've been under the opening meter and a process that PG&E has been leading that, I, that I've been working with PG&E to, for the last three or four years on is getting all of the powers that be in California and soon to be other states as well. There's a national ANSI process and a bunch of other states working on similar efforts, but getting everybody to agree on how you calculate a unit of energy savings in a uniform way, which makes it reliable and consistent and also makes it not just something a utility can do, but something that everybody in the market can also do. So if you're a PACE provider or you know an aggregator of any sort, and you're going to get paid over time now, not up front, you know, you're, rather than get a rebate, you're now getting a cash flow. And that cash flow is a result of being confident in your yields times a price with an investment-grade counterparty called utility turns efficiency into a long-term cash flow instead of an upfront payment. And so if you can have confidence in that cash flow, you know, as an aggregator, you have to have this agreement on how the calculation is done. And so it's all the little decisions that get baked into it. And the problem we have right now is if we gave the same 100 homes to five different engineers, you'd probably end up with seven answers. And this is the punchline, but it's true. They'd all be right. And that's the problem. So we, the opening meter Caltrack process is getting an agreement on what exactly is a megawatt and how it's calculated. And then because of things like share my data and pg territory, which is our version of Green Button, which gives us access to AMI data, we're back to we're talking about the smart meters again, outside of the utility firewalls with customer permission, and the fact that we've standardized the data being used in the state of California onto something called Home Performance XML. Third-party aggregators have all the data they need not only to track savings in their portfolio, you know, using an API with the utility, getting load shape and gross savings, but also the data that they need to start to figure out what works, you know, what sets of energy conservation measures and what types of houses deliver what types of load shape. And that all becomes a function of the marketplace. Okay. So the cash flow obviously originates with the customer. They're the ones who are actually putting the money out. They're spending essentially what they were before the energy efficiency measure was made. And then there's the delta for what's actually being consumed in energy, and that becomes the financeable cash flow? That's a great point. So there are actually three cash flows in most energy efficiency transactions. There is the savings that the customer experiences on their bill, right? And in this model, they're going to still receive those savings on their bill every month. However, you can securitize those savings as well. I mean, that's basically an energy services contract is, right. is, is aggregating and securitizing bill savings. So that's cash flow number one, savings on your bill. Cash flow number two is some sort of straight finance. We often call it efficiency finance, but it's underwriting generally credit or asset of the customer or potentially being underwritten by a PACE assessment or an on-bill financing mechanism or something like that. But we call it efficiency finance, but we're not underwriting energy efficiency. Really, it's not efficiency finance, it's just finance. So that's the next cash flow. And that's, you know, finance provider says we're going to provide the upfront capital. 
you've got a 700 FICA score, you're going to pay us back. Great. That's cash flow two. We're adding a third cash flow to the model, which has its origins that are similar to where rebates come from in thinking. But it's basically saying to the utility, because we're going to go retrofit, an aggregator saying this, you know, we're going to go in Marin, or this happens where I'm standing, you know, we have a lot of solar production, which is driving the cost of energy at 2 p.m. into negative territory, but holy cow, 4 p.m. is a huge problem on the neck of the duck, if you guys are familiar with the duck cutter, right. comes rocketing back. We need to curb the neck of the duck. We're going to invest in energy efficiency load shape, permanent load shape change to reduce the neck of the duck. And that's going to mean we don't have to build those transformers anymore and we can buy half as much storage as we're otherwise going to have to buy. And that's the capacity value. And that's the third cash flow. And that's actually what we're talking about, securitizing and aggregating in this model. It's not individual customers. It's actually the customer signing that value over to the aggregator. Because again, there's a real moral hazard even on individual customers. Right. Uh, you know, you don't want to be sending people checks because they went to Mexico for the summer. And you don't want other people who get a bum retrofit, which does happen, to not see the savings and not get the value of their capacity because they had a bad contractor. You know, so we, we aggregated at the portfolio level. And that's how we have companies who have the data to understand what works to basically translate that long-term cash flow into better products for customers and contractors that maximize that benefit, that savings value benefits the utility. And so, you know, in a competitive market, that cash flow, it's not like they get wait around and get paid to get paid over time. They take that cash flow, which is very reliable because again, portfolio level yields are consistent. You've got a utility paying the other side of the transaction. You know, that becomes something you can finance. It's going to become structured finance. And the good news is, is that type of structured finance, project finance, financing cash flows from projects, is that's actually what project finance means. Project finance is not financing projects, it's financing the results of those projects, the cash flows. And that starts to look like how we build energy infrastructure. If I was to go to a large utility and say, I'm going to build you guys a natural gas plant, or and I go to my investors, I have a PPA with a utility to buy the power I'm going to be generating, I'm going to have to have good credit and like, it's going to have to be a strong asset. But before I get a billion dollars to build my plant or whatever it's going to cost, that investment is underwritten by the fact that I'm going to generate electricity and sell it. And that cash flow is what underwrites that investment. And so what's really interesting about this model is once you kind of shed all of the layers of energy efficiency that we become very accustomed to, the rebates and the programs and the regulation and the valuations and all these sorts of things, you look at it, well, we end up with something that looks just like every other market. We've agreed on how we measure efficiency as a derived value. We've agreed on the calculation. Utilities send a price signal. They say, you know, we need a certain amount of demand capacity in certain periods of time. You can bid into a market. This is, this is a little bit future at this point, but this is where we're going. And it will arrive at a price based on supply and demand. Then the market will figure that out. And, you know, it'll, if it's, as long as it's cheaper than alternatives, it ends up being a good deal. And what you end up with is long-term cash flows by all these aggregators that can be securitized and brought into the secondary market. And just like car loans or anything else, you know, your local car dealer doesn't sit on your car loan, gets packaged up and brought into the marketplace. And that's how capital gets injected into the market. So does the initial capital to do all these efficiency measures, is this still provided by the customer or is there another entity here that's stepping in to be the financier? So there isn't one answer, which is a little bit of a frustrating answer I'm going to tell you, which is not meant to be frustrating, but that is honestly the truth, right? One of the beauties of this model that makes me kind of confident in it is that we don't have to foretell what the winning business models will look like. If that makes sense, the market will. And there's probably going to be a lot of different answers that work, I hope. But in general, we have found that customers don't want to wait around and get paid and somebody does have to pay for the upfront capital. So I think what you'll find in the market for the most part is, you know, let's just take pace as an example. And they're the 800 pound gorilla in the room. 
right? The residential pace in California is the most exciting thing that's happened to energy efficiency, period, since I've been involved. They did $500 million in residential efficiency projects just last year, entirely with private capital, without using incentives. We should probably explain for those who might not have heard of it that PACE is property assessed clean energy. Right. And why don't you tell them how it works? Yeah, I mean, so it's fairly straightforward, honestly. Primarily, rather than looking at customer credit, what PACE does is it assigns, it creates an assessment through your local government whereby you pay back your your PACE assessment, which can be used to pay for renewables, water efficiency, and of course, energy efficiency that are fixed to the house based on, again, an assessment on your tax bill. And the, the beauty is, I guess, from a financing perspective is the tax man always gets paid. And this means that it can survive foreclosure. You, you know, it can stay with your house when you sell it. And you can have basically awful credit as long as you've got a house that, that the taxes are up to date and that has a certain amount of equity that varies a little bit from place to place, but you have equity value. So what this does eliminates just a ton of barriers and it makes it for a very low cost, long-term transaction. And so you're getting relatively low interest rates for what is really not a secured product for up to 20 years and even longer than that for some measures like solar that actually have a longer lifespan. And, and what you have in the PACE environment is a bunch of competing, very well-funded companies that are, that again, have gone from next to nothing four years ago to a half a billion dollars just in California last year and growing at just an alarming, not the right word, I guess, but an amazing clip. I mean, just absolutely scaling. The downside to PACE, and they, the PACE providers would recognize this, and, and sometimes people are saying, like, oh, the problem with PACE is, I wouldn't put this as a problem for PACE. I actually think this is a policy problem, but we've given the PACE providers no reason to care about energy efficiency. They get paid based on the moving money into the market full stop. And they care about energy efficiency, but they're businesses, you know, and their investors want a return on their investment and they're not going to take one for the team. So let me go back to your question is like, what does a customer expect? Again, they're going to have a lot of choice. That's the first thing. There's not going to be one program. They're going to be able to vote. Contractors and customers are going to be able to choose those business models that actually work for them. But I think for the most part, you'll see there's pace assessments in the market right now that are getting a lot of traction. The future, it may be as simple as when the HVAC guy shows up, they're not going to just sell you a furnace anymore. They're going to sell you a furnace with some duct sealing and insulation, replace a few incandescents with LEDs at the same time, and put a uh, smart thermostat on the wall. And the whole thing is just a lot less expensive than it would have cost you just to get the furnace in the first place because they're maximizing the value of that cash flow in the back end and they're using it to cut the cost up front and make it a more more valuable product and beat the competition. So is it like buying a car where the customer can just walk in and basically buy the car along with a financing package from whatever bank is providing it and then walk out after making their first payment in a down or something like that? Yeah, I mean, the, those models definitely exist and pace feels a lot like that. You know, no, it doesn't cost you anything out of pocket. But the only real difference is that efficiency today, and we hope this will start changing really, but is more sold than it is bought. So it's probably a provider it's more like generally a customer having either something that's broken or some sort of problem and then, you know, enlisting the help of somebody who will sort out basically what could actually help solve that problem and how to finance it. So it's, it's more sold than bought, but yes, that's, that's basically what it looks like. Okay. Um, so to a customer, everything I'm describing, it sounds very complicated. Frankly, if you're a contractor or a customer, the car analogy is just kind of an easy one. But every time you, if you go buy a cell phone or a car or any of these things, you're actually interacting with a system that's almost exactly like I'm describing. It's just that it's totally invisible to you as a customer. And it's also invisible to you as a, you know, if you work in a car dealership, you don't really understand what's going on to manage risk on a portfolio of car loans. So from a customer perspective, you're just getting a better deal and there's more choice in the marketplace is what it comes down to. 
But one of the real strengths around pay for performance is just like when the solar industry started, nobody had a master plan around leases and PPAs and how these companies would go to market. It was really that brutal selection, the fist fight that's a competitive market that resulted in those solutions that worked for customers and also made money and worked for capital markets. And frankly, that's where the solutions are going to come from in this approach. And that's its strength is that, you know, I have my opinions on what I think will work in the market. And so do you, perhaps, and many people do. But when we change this model and say we're going to track and pay for results, we really can allow the market to function and let customers choose the business models that work best for them. And same for the contractors, you know, let them choose the models that work for their customers and they make money at. And rather than being on four-year program cycles with a 200-page report at the end to tell you how you did, we'll be on the cycles you get in the private sector, which is generally a couple weeks in a payroll cycle and if you don't change your debt. Right. That's the real advantage the private sector has. It's not that, you know, private companies are a lot smarter. It's frankly probably the opposite. It's the feedback loop and the fact that continuous improvement and the fact that if your idea isn't any good you clear out pretty quick, which is a market efficiency. Right. So on March 25th, PG&E filed a plan with the CPUC to launch a residential pay-for-performance program as part of what's called the High Opportunity Projects and Programs, or HOPs. The program will not only take a pay-for-performance approach to residential retrofits, it also opens the door to aggregators who might manage a portfolio of such projects, as you were discussing a few minutes ago, and get paid by PG&E for maximizing the energy savings from that portfolio. So why is this new PG&E plan interesting, and what's the advantage of having aggregators playing a role in it? Well, I think this is interesting, I mean, almost for all the reasons I just described. There's been other attempts at pieces, you know, pieces of this basic model, but I think this is the PG&E is kind of pulling together all of the different pieces necessary to establish what I would consider the first true energy efficiency market, or at least the beginnings of the first few and true energy efficiency market. So I think that's why it's really exciting. And it is an early pilot, so it's basically as simplified as one can make it because we are introducing a whole bunch of new moving parts into the model all at once. But in that pilot as well, PG references that this is really about creating a framework and the beginning of moving towards you know energy efficiency as a procurable resource. These are really just the first steps. So that's what makes it so exciting is that, frankly, it's, it's not just another program. It really is with intention that this be starting to build the systems and start to kind of create the, the structure of a market that can lead to procurement of efficiency as capacity over the next, over the next few years. So what is the role of aggregators? Well, so like I said, the, the aggregators are really the businesses and they could be pace providers. They could be vertically integrated contractors. Some of the largest program implementers in the country are also looking at this model. That's really the engine of innovation, right? Those are the companies that are going to be competing to use the data that's now available and to put together all the pieces that one needs to have a consumer offering. The upfront financing, you know, having the data to figure out what types of energy conservation measures work the best on certain houses, how to package that up and train contractors to deploy it, you know, all the different facets that are necessary to get that really simple customer offering into people's hands. And so kind of critical of this model is, you know, again, we're not writing checks to individual homeowners. It's the aggregator that's assembling a portfolio of energy efficiency projects and entering into a contract and then selling those savings from that portfolio to the utility or the load serving entity if it's not a, not a traditional utility. Right. And it's the alignment of interest. So really, you know, if you take those companies that are competing with each other in the market, and it means that those that can figure out how to deploy energy efficiency projects that deliver in the case of the pilot, the most savings, but ultimately the most valuable savings will make the most money and be the most profitable. So it sends the right market signal. 
And then we want the money to flow through industry, you know, and because that's actually when we, at the beginning, we talked about how paying rebates up front misaligns incentives, right? You pay in advance. You have no reason to care about long-term energy savings. It's, you know, similar to solar with a solar, you know, lease or PPA where performance risk moves into the market. We're now these aggregators and the contractors and ultimately the secondary markets that are going to be investing in the proceeds from these transactions and in the, in the long-term cash flows are at risk to the performance. And, and that's really what enables us to deregulate. And, and there's a great analogy for that in the solar industry where you can see that if you want to securitize residential solar projects, things like quality assurance are a flat-out requirement because you know those projects aren't just straight loans. They have a performance guarantee associated with them. So now all of a sudden, rating agencies and senior capital markets care about the quality of the underlying projects because they're actually at risk. So kind of the one of the more key things, in addition to just bringing capital into the marketplace in a way that'll make contractors more profitable and whatnot is creating that alignment, which enables us to step out of the rebate trap. And regulators don't have to you know, regulate every step in the process. So you actually see like fixed income markets or maybe even yield codes getting involved in this space? Yes. Not tomorrow. Yeah. Well, it's going to take a while to build up an adequate portfolio that would be the right deal size for them to be interested in that sort of thing anyway. Yes. That, I mean, all that's true. And frankly, we just need more data. You know, yeah. it's all a function of the data. And we have a lot of data now, but markets will get involved based on the data we have today, but they really need more firsthand experience to gain enough comfort. But I can tell you that over the last decade, I've had many meetings with our friends in the in the capital markets, working for you know Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank and all these different players. And you know, usually when I talk about efficiency, they look at me a little cross-eyed. To be honest, they can't quite figure out what I'm talking about historically. Well, no one's turned it into a good cash flow yet. Right, but as we've turned this corner, and actually, in, in a, I'm not going to try to take all the credit. They've been hearing from people like Richard Kaufman in New York. Sure. And I've sat down with them subsequent to that, and they, they don't know, they, they don't know how to trust me from Adam, but they know Richard. Kaufman. So they say, oh, you know, he's talking about these markets and you start to put these pieces together. And I've had these kind of uh, epiphany moments where they said, well, wait a minute, this is just structured finance. You know, if the yields are really as stable as you're showing us and, you know, and you have an investment grade counterparty, I mean, those are deals we do all day long. You're going to have to get it rated. But if you can get it rated and also if you can get us $100 million worth of it, <laughs> that's the other piece. Right. Those are the kind of deals we can do. That's then they start talking about, wow, we will, well, bring it to us before the traders see it, that kind of thing. <laughs> But, you know, we're not there yet, but it makes right. sense to them. I'll steal my, my, one of my favorite quotes from Cisco DeVries, who's the CEO of, of uh, Renew Financial, and, and actually one, really the guy that came up with Pace to a large degree. They've done some securitization, mostly actually of unsecured loan products. But people are like, how did you manage to do that? Everyone's talked about doing that for all these years, and you guys went and did it. How did you do it? And his, his explanation is really simple. We didn't go to Wall Street and try to explain to them why efficiency is special. We put data together, made this efficiency transaction essentially look like a mortgage-backed securities transaction. Exactly. exactly. We made it look exactly like everything else. Exactly. So I've heard you talk about demand capacity as a distributed energy resource. This is kind of a curious little twist on the, the usual meanings of these words. So what sort of demand capacity are you talking about and how is it a DER? Yeah, so I felt like we needed a new name just because there's not enough acronyms in efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually think it deserves a new name because efficiency tends to mean base load deemed savings programs and energy and like, you know, physics models. Yeah. And so the fundamental difference between efficiency and demand capacity is including location and time dependencies. You have to know when and where it's going to happen. And that's really critical. You know, if you're a grid planner and say, I'm going to save energy in pg e territory, they say, that's really interesting. You go do that. You know, but for, to make it something they can actually use 
and think about as part of their actual physical energy mix to make sure the lights stay on. They need to know when and where it's happening. And again, that's newly kind of available information to us that we're still learning a hell of a lot about, honestly, because we can now get interval data and we can get it out of the IOUs and, and, and still very basically impossible to do on individual assets. But when you start to get large enough ends and big enough numbers, you can end up with pretty high confidence intervals in the load shape that you're generating. And so, you know, basically this, when you squint and back up a little bit, it makes efficiency look like other forms of capacity is really what it comes down to. And so just kind of coined the term demand capacity because, again, I can't say I love the term, frankly, but it's, uh, it needs a new word. So you're trying to integrate the concept of locational marginal pricing in with efficiency, basically. Yeah, exactly. And, and just trying to draw a distinction between the two because it, it's really a form of demand response. It's passive demand response. It's permanent load shape change. Right. That's the part I was struggling with there, because when I think of demand response, I think of something that's sort of transient that just happens for minutes or hours or whatever, right. not something that's permanent. Well, and that's a different resource that can also be, I mean, these are all attributes of the same product that can be sold into different markets. I mean, there are different dimensions. The duration, you mean? Yeah. I mean, there's there's permanent load shape change. That's one kind of attribute that can be sold. There is dispatchable demand responses, which we typically think about. There's carbon value in certain, you know, depending on how you're regulated. Where in California, it's already rolled into a price, but elsewhere that can be disaggregated. And there's even efforts to monetize health values that are real. And so all of these are different attributes that can be actually monetized very much the same in a very similar way over time. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I wanted to talk about next. I mean, it's it's clear enough that you could pay for energy efficiency retrofits based on actual performance. But what isn't straightforward is how much we should pay for it, how it should be valued. Because clearly, if you can perform demand response with it or avoid investment in new distribution capacity because you're reducing demand, then you should be able to get paid for more than just the kilowatt hours or BTUs of energy that are being saved. So what's what's the state of the art in valuing energy efficiency? So first of all, we've we've all these smart people trying to develop business models, but answering that question is, you know, what is the value for efficiency? That's the elephant in the room. That's where we should be spending all of our time, honestly. Hmm. You know, we're just figuring that out for solar and we haven't we're just starting to even figure that out for storage. These are very complicated questions. So there's a couple of pieces to it. In the pilot that you referenced from PG, we're starting out really simple because nobody knows how to value. So they're saying like, we're basically saying we should set a price as a discount rate to the current total cost of the program. Like if we were spending X per kilowatt hour when you admin plus incentive, let's discount that 25%. Wouldn't that be great if we can get more savings for 25% less cost? So, that, so to start with, it's really synthetic. We're just picking a number because nobody knows how to value it, to be honest. Okay, okay. But as we move down the road, there's a broader conversation to really think about all the attributes and make sure it's fairly, fairly valued. But so two things. One is that rather than be as cheap as we can make it, which is efficiency, like, you know, everybody wants the two and a half cent kilowatt hour because something, you know, we kind of set that, you know, we're sending out coupons. So the goal is how cheap can we make those coupons, right? But we should now be thinking about energy efficiency really as competing against the levelized marginal cost of the alternatives in the marketplace. And if you were going to have to buy batteries at 18 cents a kilowatt hour, and I can go in and do fancy heat pumps or whatever the technology is or insulation, at 16 cents a kilowatt hour and get you those savings in the right place at the right time and they're, and they're real, that sounds like a price, right? It's cheaper than the alternatives. It's a good right. deal. And so right. it's a different way to think about it. And the most important thing is we need to introduce supply and demand. And honestly, this is also, this is not a good podcast, I think, to dive into a two-hour E&B conversation, but that's also how you handle it. Oh, well, you'd be surprised. All right. Well, actually, maybe next time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of concern about because efficiency as it has been is all been about incremental savings, right? Like the only thing you want to pay for is only new stuff. 
And there's a lot of worry about like free ridership, this notion of like paying for stuff that would have happened anyways. And that is also largely solved by markets. And so if we're trying to procure a limited amount of capacity in a certain area, let's say we need two you know, megawatts worth of savings, and let's pick on No Valley again, which I'm standing, and you have competition, right, to get into that procurement, that will set the price, right? And if there's really a bunch of cheap or free savings that would have happened anyways, that means you have a lot of supply, the price will fall. So there's a lot we can do, you know, within that framework is to allow competitive markets to arrive at the price. And as long as that price is, you can rely on it and you believe it's real and you're really not going to build, you know, those transformers that you would have otherwise, and it's actually less than those costs, then it's a good deal. And let's go back. Remember, I talked about at the very beginning when I started my first job out of technology into renewables and energy efficiency because the company I worked for sold a megawatt at $9 a watt and got a 450 rebate. Never going to happen again in the history of solar, for sure, right? One should not believe markets are perfect because they're not. They have to be regulated, et cetera. There's a big task there. But I do believe that markets are fairly perfect at one thing, which is in a transparent, competitive market, all the fat gets squeezed out pretty darn quick. And so I, I think we do need to kind of trust that these markets will arrive at the price that is reasonable if we allow them to emerge and be competitive. And it's not going to happen overnight. I guess the efficacy of this market will really depend also on the players, like whether the right entities are participating and what they're buying and selling. We've talked on this show in previous episodes about some of the components of valuation that are being explored for things like ancillary services provided by devices that can do demand response or valuing the various services that can be provided by storage systems if the valuations were unbundled. So how do we make sure that the full suite of services that energy efficiency can provide get traded in these markets and not just left out of the market as they are today? Well, so one is, again, we're, we're not, in fact, we almost like we can't. We, we don't know where the stuff comes from at the level that we're measuring. We can't actually tell the difference between behavior and a new furnace necessarily. I mean, we might be able to in the data disaggregate it out, but honestly, we don't care. And persistence is handled because we're paying over time. You know, we don't have to worry about Figuring out if we think it's a reliable piece of equipment, we're paying for the savings as it actually happens. So it's pretty much agnostic to technology. Uh, you know, if you have some new home energy Internet of Things device, you don't have to go prove to the Energy Commission that it works. Take your own bet. You know, if it works, you make money. If it doesn't, you don't. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's really agnostic to technologies all around. And then, you know, within market design, we can do things to encourage the type of things that we want to see happen in the market. Uh, some of those things may not be about getting the cheapest savings. You know, we might want to encourage deeper retrofits. We can do that by how we establish markets. We can do procurements that require certain depth of savings on average. We could even do things aimed at certain technologies. As long as we recognize that we're doing those things, not, not in the name of cheapest energy, and we shouldn't be held accountable to the same cost-effectiveness thinking, but to achieve other policy goals. That would also include helping low-income families, for example, right? And that's, in my world, perfectly acceptable. We just have to acknowledge what we're doing. It's not about lowest-cost resource anymore. Right. So among the many projects that you seem to somehow be involved in, <laughs> tell me about, you're also the director of the Investor Confidence Project. What's that about? So ICP and open energy efficiency are very similar beasts. So at a macro level, the, the way we're approaching residential energy efficiency and also small, medium business, which is another really good approach to take a data-driven approach, which is really the pay-for-performance approach that we're talking about. So if you have a large number of, of similar things, you can put them all in a bucket like we're doing, and that works really well. The Investor Confidence Project, which is an environmental defense fund project that I've been running for the last four years, is really trying to put the foundation in place to achieve a number of goals in commercial multifamily that ultimately arrive in the same place. 
Um, so what we've done with the Investor Confidence Project is taken uh, commercial and multifamily projects, which are really all over the map. Each one is a unique asset is what it comes down to. And even if they're not totally unique, you'd be hard pressed as a building owner, a utility or an investor to know what you're looking at without really expensive due diligence. Because we have multiple you know, standards in the marketplace, they can apply to the same project in many different ways. And so you end up with a very heterogeneous pool of projects. So what ICP does is we certify what we call investor-ready energy efficiency projects. This is an underwriting certification that says that a given retrofit project has followed the appropriate standards, applied in the right way, and then documented in a standard way across its lifespan from baselining and savings calculation and then having a commissioning O&M and measurement verification plan in place that can be executed on during the performance period. And then it's certified by a third party, an independent review by an engineering firm. And that basically creates the confidence for either a utility program or a building owner or an investor that they're looking at a standard asset. Um, and this can, in the near term, this reduces underwriting costs and technical due diligence, where often the same project is going through the same 10 plus thousand dollar review by three or four different actors. So it creates a lot more liquidity and lower transaction costs and more deals done. But it also establishes an asset class, a bunch of, a, a standard bucket of projects that you can start to aggregate together into portfolios. Um, and then underneath that, we have documentation. We're actually mapping that about to release a beta specification. So ultimately, what you end up is classes of standard projects with the underlying data that you need to do the analytics to understand the yields, basically. So the Investor Confidence Project right now, we're doing, we, we actually, uh, pg announced two pilots last week. One was paid for performance and residential. The other was an on-bill financing pilot using the Investor Confidence Project certification. We're also working with New Jersey and their pay for performance program. We're about to be announcing some pilots in New York. We're working in Texas with their PACE program. And then we're also in about six countries in Europe through a European Commission Grant as well. And so if you think about the Investor Confidence Project, it's actually kind of building the foundational elements so that as we get increased scale and larger volumes in commercial multifamily, very much the same approach can, can come into play. Gotcha. Wow. Fascinating stuff. You certainly have done a lot of work, my friend, to make all this stuff work. I'm, I'm just so impressed. It is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot of work. I don't know. We still have to make it work, though. So that, that's the the exciting part. Is a friend of mine who has been involved is you know saying, "Oh, you should be so happy. You've been working on this for how long?" And they just put in the and, and I did have like a a momentary celebration when the PG submitted their pilot last week. Mm. But honestly. All of this has been built, putting the foundational elements in place, and now we actually have to go do all the real work. <laughs> that is truth right there. Wow. Well, that was a quick hour. Thanks a lot, Matt. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show and share with our listeners how all this crazy stuff works. Yeah, my pleasure. And I, I'm, I'm sure you'll have some way to share some of these links as well if they want to do a bit of a dive on the pay for performance pod and likes. But oh, thank abs you all for absolutely. Your time. I, I have all sorts of uh, homework for my listeners in the show notes. And, and my advice, by the way, is if you've been in efficiency and a lot of this stuff sounds a little daunting or new, stick with it. And this is just my prediction, but I've, I've been through, I had this personal transformation myself and I, and I work with a lot of folks who come out of efficiency and we get very comfortable with the way we have been doing things. And so just trust me and put in the time because once you're able to snap out of the paradigm we've been living in and start to really understand how this approach works, what looks very complicated on the outset actually becomes a lot easier. And, and you find that this basic approach to efficiency is actually a lot less brain damage than, than what we've been trying to do. <laughs> and that's the upside of the whole thing right there. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Matt, for being on the show. Thank you, Chris. 
That was Matt Golden, CEO of Open Energy Efficiency and director of the Investor Confidence Project. I think Matt's idea to transition from a programs-based approach that just offers incentives for efficiency measures that may or may not actually produce energy savings to a markets-based approach that only pays for actual energy saved as measured by a meter makes a great deal of sense. It's fantastic to see that idea taking root in California and elsewhere, and I would expect that after a year or two of experience with this approach in California, the results will speak for themselves, and performance-based efficiency programs will spread like wildfire across the country. There are an estimated 170,000 energy conservation companies in the U.S., and the space is ripe for consolidation, standardization, and scaling up. And performance-based markets will offer a common platform to enable all of that. Further, utilities are eager to find new revenue streams since electricity demand has been flat to falling in most of the U.S. for almost a decade. Performance-based efficiency measures could be such a revenue stream. So for all of you long-suffering efficiency boosters out there, take heart. I think your ship is about to come in. I'm also very constructive on the Investor Confidence Project. Not only was it one of the winners of the Bloomberg New Energy Finance for Resilience competition this year, it's also an idea that really needed to become a reality in order to mobilize large amounts of capital for energy transition. Like the Climate Bonds Initiative, which established clear and well-defined standards for qualifying projects, standards that were co-developed and approved by the world's big banks and financial consultancies, the Investor Confidence Project should remove the uncertainty and unfamiliarity around energy retrofits and finally allow energy efficiency to move beyond the unique and boutique and mature into a fully fundable, fully replicable, fully scalable industry. It's wonky and a bit arcane, especially for people who aren't in the finance industry, but I think it's essential and it's very exciting indeed. Do you enjoy the Energy Transition Show enough to buy me a beer once a month as a way of saying thanks? If so, since it's a little impractical for all of you to actually physically buy me a beer in person, although I would love that, then would you consider paying $5 a month for a subscription to this show? We aim to produce a very high-quality product, and it takes a good deal of time and effort to do that. At some point, perhaps later this fall, we will be looking to start bringing in revenue in order to make all this effort sustainable and keep putting out a quality product. And we'd rather do that on a subscription basis, if possible, than subject our listeners to more bloody advertising. So, if you value this show enough to pay $5 a month for it, which would give you access to two full episodes per month, plus some other goodies, we'd like to hear from you. Or, if you have other price points in mind or other ideas, we'd like to hear those too. You can send us a note using the comment form at the bottom of each episode's page, or just drop me an email to chris at energytransitionshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one. 
Israel has committed over $200 million in grants and loan guarantees for energy efficiency projects in industry, the commercial sector, and municipalities. The effort is a part of its commitment to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions to 26% below 2005 levels. The government expects the cumulative benefit of the plan to be more than $8 billion, a fantastic investment. The cabinet also said that it is looking for ways to reduce the country's use of coal, encourage a transition to natural gas, make transportation more efficient, promote Israel's clean tech sector, and encourage renewable energy and green building projects. Item 2. An updated report from the EPA reveals that methane emissions from the U.S. oil and gas industry are 34% higher than previously estimated. This is important because methane is generally considered to be 25 times as potent as CO2 at trapping heat in the atmosphere. The higher estimate owes largely to EPA having updated its methodology for calculating emissions based on new peer-reviewed research. However, even after the revision, total emissions in 2014 are still 6.6% below the 2005 level, and methane emissions are 15% below 1990 levels. Item 3. Those who listened to Episode 9 on the macro outlook for this year might recall our discussion about the global overcapacity of seemingly all commodities, and how part of the problem is that nobody will cut back on production. Well, it now seems that Peabody Energy, the largest coal company in the world, slashed its production by one-third at its North Antelope Rochelle mine in Wyoming, the largest coal mine in the United States. Peabody took this step to bring supply back into balance with demand just a few months before the company declared bankruptcy on April 13th. We've linked to a story by Taylor Kierkendall about that in the show notes of this episode, and we will be interviewing Taylor in an upcoming episode about the fallout in coal country. And item four. Sun Edison, the largest solar company in the world, has filed for bankruptcy. It was no surprise to those who watched the solar industry closely, but casual observers are already saying that the rest of the solar industry will follow it down the tubes. And that would be the wrong lesson to take away from the Sun Edison story. First, a quick glance at the stock chart will show that while Sun Edison lost 95% of its value in 2016, other major solar players are faring far better. For example, First Solar is only down 7% on the year as of the time I'm recording this, and Yingli is actually up 13%. Second, what really brought Sun Edison down wasn't business fundamentals so much as hubris. Its $3.1 billion acquisition binge drove its debt to unmanageable levels. After launching Terraform Power, one of two listed yield codes it controlled, and promising the moon to Terraform's investors, Sun Edison had to maintain unrealistically high growth rates. And part of meeting those growth rates was forcing Terraform to buy Vivint, a major rooftop solar company, for almost $1 billion, a huge price for a business that didn't even fit with Terraform's objectives, as Liam Denning pointed out in a Bloomberg article that we'll link to in the show notes. Sun Edison went on to replace several directors at Terraform who objected, prompting a lawsuit from activist investor David Tepper, and so on and so on. Sun Edison ignored the lesson of Icarus and pursued a hyper-aggressive, debt-fueled financial strategy that ultimately ruined it. But the rest of the solar industry is still cranking along with very respectable growth rates in its long march toward becoming the cheapest form of power. So don't let Sun Edison's flame out fool you. The solar industry is doing just fine. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.